seated. Well, we are continuing our series called Love in Christ, where we're looking together at First uh, John, uh, this, this powerful letter, which uh, I want, should have a lot to, to say to us as we think about what it looks like to live in Christian community. And I always think it's significant that the earliest Christian community struggled with Christian community, because it's hard. It's hard to love each other the way that Jesus did. If it was easy, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die on a cross. It's hard to figure out that love and experience that uh, together. And that's something that is just consistent. Some preachers will get together at times and we'll share war stories of things that happened. And a friend of mine told me this week that his son this week um, pantsed a lady in his church. He didn't mean, she didn't mean to, but um, his son was just like sitting next to the lady and she was wearing some sort of like a skirt thing and she stood up to sing and his body was kind of on her dress. So she just stood, it was a terrible situation. And that's the kind of stuff that just happens in Christian community. And sometimes it's accidental, but still hurtful. But sometimes it's intentional and it's hurtful. It's hard to figure this out. We love the passage like iron sharpening iron, but the iron would be like, that hurts, right? <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not easy to live in Christian community together and figure out what, what that looks like. And so we've been looking at First John, thinking about the fact that this was written to an early Christian community, likely maybe 15 to 20 people in a house church, and they have perhaps the gospel of John, and then they're figuring out, okay, what do we do now? What does this look like? And so John writes them, then he writes something that is, is just beautiful, that was read previously, that says something very significant to us. I mean, if you were just to like sit down with somebody who didn't know anything about the Bible, you might go to this passage and say, this is the Bible in a nutshell. Like, this is what the whole Bible says. I'm going to read it again. First John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our, for our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Does any word jump out at you from that passage? Yeah, it doesn't take us like a genius to figure that one out. You're like, huh, I'm not tricking you today. It's just over and over and over again, 14 times in six verses. Love, 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 love. It's just over and over again. John is saying this is what God is like. If you're ever looking for a passage that you want to talk to someone about that maybe doesn't know Jesus at all, this is just a great place to go. This is the whole Bible in a nutshell, that God loves us, and we have the opportunity then to live from that love and experience that love. It cracks me up a little bit that as John writes, it's almost like a, a guy writing to his first girlfriend, right? I mean, it's just like over the top. As he writes about what it means to be in relationship with Christ, it's just like love, 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 love. And my first girlfriend was in 10th grade, and I remember, I, I, I kind of held out on her. I didn't tell her I loved her until week three, because I, you know, I was, thought we were going somewhere pretty serious. And unfortunately, she broke up with me after week four for her loser, like, previous boyfriend who was, like, hanging out with high school kids. I'm not bitter at all, but whatever, who, like, wasn't actually even in the school anymore, but whatever. I mean, he had a car, so it worked out a little bit better. But I remember, like, I was pretty devastated after that moment. Luckily, I had Hootie and the Blowfish to get me through. Um, 
I distinctly remember listening to the song, Let Her Cry. Like, a lot of the lyrics don't make sense for that moment, but uh, the let her go, you know, that thing, I was just, like, you gotta let her go somehow. And she never came back, so she wasn't mine, apparently. This sounds a lot like someone who's in love for the first time, right? Love, love, all these, just over and over and over again. John says, like, this is what it looks like. This is what, hopefully, ideally, if you're a Christian, you're leaning into. That this is who we're called to be. We're supposed to be people who live with an understanding that we are loved by God, and then that changes how we love other people. That changes how we function and live in the world. And what's really interesting, I think, in this passage specifically, is he says that everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. But then there's this interesting phrase later that he gave his, probably translated in your Bible, like his only begotten son. It's the same word that's used uh, in John 3.16, probably the most uh, famous passage of scripture. Uh, that this idea that God gave the only son is only, might be translated only begotten, like I said. But this is actually a, an interesting word that I think has a, a bit deeper meaning to it. It's this word, monogene. If you'll throw that up there for me, mono. Gene, uh, go ahead and say that with me, mono gene. And you don't have to be a Greek scholar to figure out like what this probably means. Mono is obviously that disease I got in tenth grade. No, that, that was no. Um, mono mono means what? One. And gene is a word that is, is a basis for a word like genetics. Um, so basically, this is saying one of a kind. You could translate it perhaps unique. So generally, when we think of this passage and the one in John 3.16, we think of it as like God's only son. But then it's interesting that in this passage, he says, anyone who loves is born of God. So I think he's trying to say more that Jesus is unique. That there's a uniqueness to who Jesus was and is. Monogene, one of a kind. There won't be one like him ever again. There's something unique about who Jesus is, about what we now see through Jesus, how we know God, that God sent his monogene, his unique son, into the world. When I think of, of that idea, monogene, something that's it's unique. I can't help but think of things that are just unique to me, that no matter how I experience them again, they're never going to be the same. One that comes to mind is uh, my grandma's berry pie. We used to go to the Northwest every summer, and we would take a couple weeks up there. That was where my grandparents were, and it was just a, a blessing. Her berry pie was just the best. I used to go out in her yard, and there was a bunch of acres, and I would come back with a sweaty handful of blueberries and raspberries and say, can you make a pie out of this? Which I'm sure she didn't actually use those specific. Uh, <laughs> she probably had some somewhere else. But she would then make the most amazing berry pie. And she put a B on it, and she said it was for Brian, but... She also probably told Brent it was for Brent, but uh, she would make this pie, and with vanilla ice cream, summertime, like, that was just it. Like, for me, I think one day that's going to be waiting for me in heaven. You know, that, that's, that's going to be there for me 
one day. And there's almost like no point in me, even if I had the recipe in front of me, even if, you know, I am not really a baker myself, but if I even tried to make it, I know there's like no point in me trying to make it. Because it's not just the pie in and of itself. It's grandma's house and that experience of the joy of experiencing what it's like to be in, in grandma and grandpa's house as a kid. It's the smells of that house. It's all of that stuff wrapped in it together. That, to me, is a monogene. I'm not going to be able to experience that ever again. What is that for you? Maybe something that is a family recipe or just something that was, was sacred or, or special that you would say, gosh, that was that's unique. That's, that's deep in my heart. And hopefully it's something that you get to experience still. Perhaps you do, but there's something unique that this person blesses me with. Or the, the way that I experience the relationship with this person, there's just something special there. This is what I believe this passage is telling us, that Jesus is unique, sacred, different, set apart. Because of his love, his life, and his sacrifice, then we now have an atoning sacrifice for our sins. John says we can understand that For all time, the sins that we've experienced, the weight that we can sometimes carry with us, we can let some of that go because of God's great love. This was good news for the people who were first reading it. The first Christians, generally people thought that they were Jews, some sort of weird sect of of Judaism because many of the early converts were Jewish. And so they are forming these communities, and the biggest problem in the New Testament is how do we allow Gentile people into the church? They're trying to figure this out, and someone says, circumcision, and someone was like, is there any other ritual we could do? Because um, we don't really want to go through that one. Uh, and so there's this conflict of how do we do this? So generally, it's a very Jewish sect of believers, and so for Jesus to be this atoning sacrifice, this isn't just like kind of good news. This is amazing news, that you could have your sins like taking care of it by belief in Jesus, by living out this love, by being baptized, by doing that, you could understand what it means that you could have a different setting. You don't have to go to the temple anymore. The temple had become a very prosperous place where if you sinned a little bit, you could get a bird for a week's worth of sins. You could get a a nice fattened calf for a year. You could do all these different things, and it became a very profitable business to atone for sins. I think it's similar to the system that uh, Martin Luther revolted against during the Reformation, the idea of indulgences. Indulgences would say, if you want to, like, get free from your sins, and then you can even do it for people who've died already. Like, what what about the torment that you're experiencing in, in hell? Like, you could fix that for your grandparents, people who've died before you. And so Martin Luther just threw that whole system off. And every once in a while, I think there needs to be a shakeup to the f- Christian faith to kind of say this is not about like making a profit or, or doing this sort of system to put a heavy weight on people. What John is telling us is we now have this atoning sacrifice, a way that we know that we are loved by God, and then that should change how we live in the world. And we shouldn't walk with the weight on our shoulders that we can sometimes walk with, even though it's difficult at times. This is fantastic news. John challenges us with, 
I would argue, one of the most challenging verses in Scripture. He says in 1 John 4, 9, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one only Son in the world that we may live through him. He sent his unique Son into the world that we might live through Jesus. That we would prop our lives up against the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. That yes, we're going to fail at this. We're going to struggle at times. But that the place we would go back to is the uniqueness of Jesus, that we would live through him. You might not know this. I've talked about this before, but I have terrible eyesight. I can't really see that far in front of my face without my glasses on. I wear contacts, but my glasses are extremely thick. And I'm very thankful for eyewear technology, or else I would be a pretty worthless human being. There's not a lot uh, I, can, I can see or take care of. And what John is trying to get me to understand and all of us to understand is every single day you should put the love of Christ on like lenses, and that is how you should see the world. That's how you should be in the world. That's how you should love people. Allow those things, allow the love of Christ to be the way that you see your neighbors. Allow that to be the way that you see your spouse. Allow that to be the thing that changes your heart so you can prop yourself up on the uniqueness of Jesus. And he uses this word, a form of a word that he's used over and over and over again in the Gospel of John, and then in 1 John, he uses the word zoe, which if you've learned nothing else in this series uh, on 1 John, uh, I hope you learned that word. Zoe is this understanding of life that John is very, very passionate about. He talks about how there's this psyche life, which is just all the stuff that can happen to you and kind of get in your way, but he says that there's the zoe life that you can tap into now, and it's often like tied to the word eternal. So he talks about an eternal zoe. And the eternal zoe is an understanding that eternity isn't just about like when you die somewhere. It's right now that eternity literally means it has no start point and it has no end point. So what John is trying to get us to wake up and realize is that we can participate in this right now. And this form of the word zoe is zezomen, and it basically just means an action word. It's a present action tense that you can participate, you can see more and more as you put on the lenses of Christ in the world, you can actively participate in the love and life of Christ now. And this is awesome news, that it isn't just about waiting, that it's also about us feeding into this understanding of what it looks like to live out the call of Christ in the present. To love, just as John writes here, just love, 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 that that you would love your neighbors like Christ, that you would even love yourself, that you would forgive yourself sometimes. You would present, actively live in the Zoe life, the way that encourages you to live to eternal perspective, to understand that like what you do now, it really matters. And wouldn't it be better to live in this kind of way? Where you're not just thrown around all the time by every little thing? I was reading a book and it compared the Zoe life to a thermostat. 
And we're very thankful for thermostats. In this room, I turned on the air at uh, 6.45 this morning. It's still struggling, but we're um, doing, doing pretty well thanks to that. When you have a thermostat, you can put the temperature on and it like, slowly marches to that place. Now, what would it look like for you to live with that understanding? Brian Regan, the comedian, says the most important question you should ask a potential spouse is what temperature do you like the air around you, which is uh, really helpful, helpful advice. But think for a moment, if you had no restrictions on an electric bill or anything, just, just tell somebody near you, what is your perfect temperature? Just tell somebody near you, whatever, whatever it is. If you had no, uh, someone said 65, whoa. Are you alive? So yeah, whatever, whatever that number, you know, you have that number in your head. Whatever it happens to be, whether you're normal and like 75 or something else, uh, whatever, whatever it happens to be, what you like that air around you. What if spiritually you could have a different setting? That, you know, Monday through Saturday, you could just be at 75 or whatever your number is, that you could live in the world and your boss drives you crazy and it's really, really hard for you to not like really like quit your job perhaps or whatever. It's very frustrating to deal with your coworker and that person might take you to 78, but you're like after you walk away, you're like, all right, I'm going back down. <laughs> I'm really tempted to do, and you kind of just, uh, that, that temperature starts to rise, but you know, I'm living from a deeper place. And what would it look like for you to have rhythms and, and practices that connect you to this great love of Christ to, to recalibrate? Maybe it's time in the Word, time where you meditate and pray. Maybe as you do your commute, you just don't have anything on the radio. You just try and, and pray and allow God to work through you. What would it look like for you to spiritually have a way to like recalibrate your heart. This is, it's hard. It's hard to do this. It's not easy to live, like live actively in the love of Christ. And it would be easier if like no people were involved because it's hard sometimes to love people. It's hard to love people as God desires that we love people. But what would it look like for you to just not be a thermometer? So I think the world has way too many thermometers. Just go through cable news or even any of the sports channels or just guys just yelling at each other. I even like sports, and it's hard for me to watch some of these shows. It's just like, I think we have way too many thermometers. We need people who live from a a different and a deeper space. What John is is saying here is really profound, that you have the ability to live like through Christ. And I get that it's hard. Just yesterday even, I was with Carter over at the Empire Center. 
That's not a place you want to be on a Saturday. Any place that has a Walmart and a Target in the same parking lot, you feel is very God-forsaken at times. But I was, I was walking in there, and Carter and I were crossing, crossing a crosswalk. We were doing the right thing, and I think it was just a, a teenage kid messing with his friend because there's a couple teenagers in the car, which is always, always safe. And uh, then the guy, I think, from the passenger seat, like, went and honked the horn. And we're, like, halfway through, and we were doing nothing wrong, and it just scared me, and mainly because it scared Carter. And just in me, it just that temperature was rising, right? And what am I really going to do? I mean, like, local pastor beats up. I got to say, nothing. It's, it's not going to happen. But I also was thinking, I have to preach this sermon tomorrow, so I can't really do that. There are things that could just throw you off all day long, right? But what is it that helps you to become recentered and to once again live from that space. John writes to this early group of people, and 14 times in six verses, he says the word love. Recalibrate your heart to the love of Christ. Let that be the thing that you live from. Let that be the thing that you see the world through, that just change your perspective. I think we know there are stories around that we get to see what happens when someone loves someone else like Jesus does. A few months ago, I heard of a story of a kid named Gabe Marshall, who was a six-year-old who had a malignant brain tumor. And he was nervous about all the procedures that he was going to have to go through. But one thing that he was most nervous about was the scar that would be left behind. And so his dad, Josh, went to a tattoo parlor, and he got that. Sometimes to love someone like Jesus would, it just takes some creativity. takes asking yourself some questions. You know what? What does my son need? What does my neighbor need? What does my spouse need? And we can get so busy with our own stuff that we can fail to do it. But when we see it, it's so beautiful, right? It just takes your breath away. John says to this group of believers, you are capable of loving people like that. You are capable of being a son, a daughter of God. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be tempting at times to just love like everybody else does. It's going to be tempting to be nervous and filled with anxiety about all this other stuff. But please, John says to this community, prop yourself up on the uniqueness of Christ. Over and over again, recalibrate your heart into who God says that you are. 
And we see it so often in the ministry of Jesus. You can pick so many stories about how Jesus loved people in the world. One that I am always blown away by is that he washes all his disciples' feet, but especially Judas. Someone who is going to betray him momentarily, he bends down and he basically says, you know, let me wash off your feet so you can go get them dirty again, betraying me. That's tough, right? You say, how do you even do that? How do you get down and make that happen? How do you do it for anybody, but especially for him? And the answer is because Jesus lived from a different source. He lived from a deeper place. He understood that he was deeply loved by God. And so he could wash Judas' feet. He could hang on a cross and say, forgive them, they just don't know what they're doing. Because he had ways to bring his heart back to 75 to bring his heart back to understand who he was because of his father. May we strive to understand and live the love of Christ. If you haven't connected your life to Jesus in baptism, I'd love to talk with you about that because it's a way for us to submit ourselves to the love and life of Christ. But for all of us, I think we need recalibrations I know one of the reasons why I love Christian community so much is we come together, we have the opportunity to take communion and admit our faults together and just basically say, I need a Savior. God, I need relationship with you. So is there a relationship that's hard for you? Is there someone that has betrayed you? Is there someone that you need to just creatively think how you could love them again? Can you be centered on the love of God? Because that love has been changing the world forever. May we be creative in how we love our neighbors, how we love our friends, how we believe that we're loved ourselves. Because it's from that place that I believe God works on our hearts. And we can be the kind of people who someday take the breath away of people when we realize, wow, I can't believe what he was able to do. I can't believe what she was able to do. And it's a story that may never get told in a sermon, but it's how I believe our world has changed. When people decide that they're not just going to be thermometers and live with anger and anxiety and just always just going from this thing to that thing, but instead as a group of people choose to live from a deeper place. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the uniqueness of our Savior. As we think about all the relationships and all the things that we struggle with and and deal with in our lives, we just give you control of those things. Father, we just allow you to be the place that we go to. Father, may you work through us and in us in those moments. In your son Jesus' name I pray, amen.